This is Geek 4, a podcast about fans, fandom, and fan culture. I'm Dr. Michael Boyce. Everyone likes something, but what are you a geek for? This episode of Geek 4 has a couple of firsts. It's the first time I've talked to someone about a subject I've already spoken to someone else about. Now, I don't think this is a problem. My focus has always been on the expression of people's love for something, as opposed to the thing itself. If you talk to five different Star Wars fans, you'll get different details about how they first discovered it, their favorite memories, their favorite movies, favorite characters. Frankly, I'm surprised we're 20 episodes into this podcast, and this is the first time it's ever happened. And it will happen again. This is also the first episode of Geek 4 I've released that wasn't recorded exclusively for Geek 4. People who listen regularly will no doubt notice that the format of the conversation is different than my normal shows, as is the focus of the conversation. See, I was invited to be the guest on my guest podcast for a class he's doing on Alfred Hitchcock. I was invited to come on and talk about two of my favorite Hitchcock films, The 39 Steps and North by Northwest. My guest today is probably the most influential person I know in terms of my own academic career. And he's the benchmark I try to live up to in terms of my scholarship and my approach to the classroom. Professor George Tolles. George was my PhD supervisor and has remained a trusted friend and mentor. And his love of movies is infectious. On a previous podcast, I talked about how I switched from medieval literature to film A lot of that was because of George. George holds the position of Distinguished Professor in English, Theater, Film, and Media at the University of Manitoba. He has written dozens of academic articles on an eclectic mix of film and literature. He's written two books, The House Made of Light and the entry on Paul Thomas Anderson for the University of Illinois Press's Contemporary Director series. Both of them are excellent. He is well known for his collaborations with Winnipeg-born filmmaker Guy Madden, writing or co-writing the screenplays for Archangel, Twilight of the Ice Nymphs, The Saddest Music in the World, Brand Upon the Brain, and for writing the dialogue for My Winnipeg. I could not have been more honored to have been invited by George to talk about two of my favorite Hitchcock films, and I am so grateful he has allowed me to share our conversation with you. Hello, you may have heard a little bit of technical jabber between us before we are officially starting. You know who I am, your teacher, George. Um, This week's guest who will be helping me to discuss Hitchcock's 1935 British film, 39 Steps, and his 1959 American film, North by Northwest, is Michael Boyce. Michael Boyce is currently Vice President Academic at Booth College. Uh, In addition to that, and prior to it, he's an Associate Professor in Literature and Film. Uh, Michael has omnivorous tastes in world cinema. I don't want to pigeonhole or classify him but he has a long-standing fascination with Hitchcock and British film in general. Uh, he wrote an extraordinary book 
published by Paul Grave Macmillan on the lasting influence of the Second World War on post-war British cinema, 1945 to 1955. And that book um, covers so many different genres and, and things that would seem to be far afield from war issues, but Michael, in very subtle, satisfying ways, shows how the war is next to impossible to leave behind, uh, no matter what the genre uh, or directorial intentions. In any event, hello, Michael. Hello, thank you. Okay. Um, that was a wonderful introduction. And um, as the person who supervised the thesis, I uh, I lay a lot of that responsibility at your feet. Thank you, George. Oh. It's an honor to be here. Oh, oh. <laughs> honor and soon to be pleasure for both of us. Okay, we're gonna start today with the second film, North by Northwest, not out of any intention of, of placing 39 steps in a lesser or um, more thinly realized or achieved category. In fact, you can argue strenuously that so much of what is in North by Northwest has its source in 39, and North has its source in 39 steps. I mean, the thinking of what we now regard as the Hitchcock chase thriller is uh, so consummately understood and elaborated in the earlier film. Michael has, I think, nicely identified North by Northwest as a spiritual remake of 39 Steps. Michael, would you like to briefly explain what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, Hitchcock only remade one of his films, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, but I really think having watched these films back to back in preparation for this conversation, there's just so much that that you can see the influence of, of 39 Steps on North by Northwest. It's not a proper remake, but I think it's a spiritual reimagining of some of the amazing things he was doing in that film with a new with a new cast, with new uh, technology, with new capabilities. Right. In addition to that, I'd like to hover though, over that word spiritual. I mean, Hitchcock is emphatically a Catholic filmmaker. Yes. Uh, I mean, and his Jesuit training, it seems to me, informs all of his thinking about both love and murder. So spiritual in the in a more Christian framework, if you like. Do you feel yeah. that the word has that kind of implication for you as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think I think Hitchcock's uh, Jesuit training certainly influences everything that he's doing. Uh, his imagining certainly of guilt and sin and, and kind of all the all the negative emotions. And I think when he when, when um, we come to the North by Northwest, we're seeing him re discovering and reimagining those those same themes that he he brought out in uh, 39 steps yes though so north by northwest is in many respects a comedy a, co a comic thriller mm -hmm. 
but never too far away from genuine danger. I think in characterizing its romance, that we're, we're going deeper with it than the comparable romance at the center of, or off, slightly off from the center of 39 Steps, right. that, that North by Northwest really is about a, an individual who is living so superficially and meaninglessly, gradually acquiring a comprehension of what it means to be connected mm-hmm. to another person. And in the process, not making himself into a better individual. There's a great phrase in Emerson, uh, which William Rothman uses in his preface to his book. Um, I'll just read a couple of sentences here. The other interpretation or picture of Hitchcock's authorship is that with each new film, he thinks a new thought, takes a new step, draws a new circle, as Emerson might have put it, always aspiring to walk in the direction of what Emerson calls the unattained yet attainable self, and that he ultimately overcomes or transcends the murderous dimension of his art. Now, while this is by no means invariably the case in his narratives, I think in North by Northwest, going back to that word, word spiritual, there is that sort of overcoming. And um, Grant, Cary Grant's Roger moves from being a figure whose initials spell rot and whose middle initial O stands for nothing, as he tells Eva Marie Saint, into something, into someone who is beginning to understand love and involvement and risk for, for the sake of another human being. Yeah. Um, when, when we first meet him, uh, he's, he's walking with his secretary. He's, you know, the kind of the walk and talk. Uh, they're constructing, they're writing the notes for the, 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 the women in his life and, you know, superficial to the nth degree. Um, we learn later he has this, you know, kind of overly close relationship with the mother. Um, he still lives with after, he two, still divorces. Lives after two divorces. Um, so when he comes to he's meet, drunk. he's drunk. Uh, when he, when he, when he meets, when he meets Eve, it's, it's a real um, potential to grow and to become something better than, than what he was. So it takes quite a while for him yes. to, yes. the light to go on. Yeah. And there's some ups would, and downs along the way. <laughs> I, would, I would say, I would mark the moment of serious transition, the point where he's planning to walk away from the professor at the airplane uh-huh. right before they leave for Rapid City, South Dakota, when he realizes that Eve is a double agent and that this behavior in the art auction has put her life at risk. And Roger, at that point, you can see it go, his face suddenly opening up 
to both guilt and a sense of responsibility and caring, which enables him to at least get on the plane as opposed to walking away from it. And I would say mm -hmm. that the that's the hinge moment for his character. And you might say similarly in Eva Marie Saint's case, Michael pointed out um, the moment in the auction when we see that her eyes are yeah are, are filled with tears. Yeah, it's it's uh, she she has a remarkable performance, Eva Marie Saint, and it's that it's that moment for me that really kind of lets us know because I I can't remember at that moment if we know she's a double a we don't know she's a double agent at that point, um, but we realize that she's that that she has she she is hurt by by what Roger is doing, um, and wants to protect you know and that him she cares, and, and that she cares for him yeah and, yeah. and takes and takes no sinister pleasure in the fact that she set him up for the kill or that she's lied to him or betrayed him in the various yeah. way. I mean, it's interesting that there could be so much lying, betrayal and double dealing without doing in the potential for a successful romantic yeah. coming together. But I think it's precisely because the difficulties are not the sitcom or screwball comedy difficulties that the final linkage at a deeper level of these two characters amounts to something. Mm -hmm. And and as we were talking earlier, um, before we started recording, um, for her to play that role, for Eva Marie Saint to play the role, both, uh, as you said, like, she's a lady, like, you know, Eva Marie Saint, the actress, is is a lady. Um, so so to to have the the sexuality coaxed out of her that we could that we can believe authentically that she would actually be seducing Roger Thornhill in that scene, um, but playing it in such a way that once we realize that she was that she's working for Van Damme, that oh there may have been sinister motives, and then later when we reveal a double, we reread that scene um, for for a, for a second or third time um, that. Oh, maybe she actually really liked him, and so that she's able to play all these things so well. Um, and there's much of the uh, much of the story that, like, we kind of follow along with Roger Thornhill, and we see as he we discover things as he's discovering them. There's things that we learn that he doesn't know, but but that one, the whole progression of of his relationship with her, we kind of follow along and learn as he learns. Um, and we have to then go back like he does and replay the scenes in, yes. in our minds. That's right. It, it seems to me we'll have more to say about the dining car seductions <laughs> later. But I would say for now, um, I think everything needs to be placed on a very fine line with a scene like that for it to be something other than uh, crudely lascivious people pushing too hard. I mean, it would be very easy for even Saint to be in the double entendre dialogue, uh -huh. sort of self-satisfied, predatory, too obvious, too full of herself, vain, smirking, and similarly, um, the way in which Cary Grant receives the offers and interprets it. I mean, again, he there's not a, a hint of a leer or a, a, a 
oh boy, oh boy, or self-satisfied appetite. It's amazing how much tact and discretion and veiled wit and and unexaggerated communication within a scene that um, to be so delightfully uh, sensual mm-hmm. needs to needs to kill obviousness and heaviness of every kind in the bud. Yeah, yeah, and and it's such an interesting contrast to the Thirty Nine Steps, where uh, you know Richard Henney meets Pamela on the train for the first time. Uh, pre- you know, pretends to kiss her in her compartment, and she turns him in right away. Like that's yes. the, you know that's the dismissal. Oh, and, and, and sorry, go ahead. Finish. Oh, and even Marie Saint invites invites Roger Thornhill in, yes. says she believes his story, and 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 helps him escape. Yes, it's it's interesting that Hannah, played by a British star, film star of the period, in some ways Hitchcock's first opportunity to work with a major star that we don't yeah. perhaps know uh, Robert Donet very well anymore. Some of you may have seen his Academy Award winning performance in Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Uh, a first rate actor, but not someone with the extraordinary star persona and, and achieved um, well, call it um, movie star perfection in certain yeah. ways of of Cary Grant, so that we don't know who Hannah is, and I don't think we um, are sure how Hitchcock means us to take Hannah's rough tree i mean on the one hand he's improvising as he always is grabbing her and saying and saying all right i'm having a private moment here with a girlfriend please do not um intrude with your policeman concerns we have nothing to do with that but of course she has not been consulted in any way that's 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 Hannah is simply aggressive there, but interestingly, Hitchcock, throughout the film to this point, has not identified for us who or what Hannah himself is really all about. We we have we know. I mean, Michael has mentioned a number of things that we learn about Roger Thornhill right at the start, uh, six or seven things about his condition, situation. There's almost nothing we can say about Hannah other than that he's a visitor from Canada, uh, that he is living in an apartment, uh, that he's gone to the music hall at the beginning, and uh, that he's innocent of Annabelle's death. I mean, aside from that, that's it. I mean, we don't know this person. Pretty much it. Watch him in his handcuffed relationship with Pamela and all the, you call this the false marriage stretch of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't, it's true that you don't 
share her views that he is likely to be guilty of what he's been charged with. But though, you, though you're convinced he's innocent of that, you can't um, know any more than she can know what sort of man he, no. he in truth may turn out to be. And what's interesting is is the way Hitchcock introduces him in the musical sequence. Everything is shot from behind for the first little yeah. bit. He buys he buys the ticket. We're seeing, I mean, that's coded as him being mysterious. Yes. that's coded as and him potentially being villainous, villainous, murderous. Even in fact, you could say it's a lodger style introduction yeah. of him. I mean, whenever well, you're seeing someone from behind, uh, with with their face withheld performing actions in which we don't have the privilege of serving the whole person. Yep. Our first impulse, I think, is to say this individual has something to hide. Yep. There's and no intimacy with us. We don't, we, we, we don't know what, why he's doing these things. And I, I think the connection of the lodge is correct. I mean, Rothman makes that connection um, that th there is a, Rothman says that there's one notable difference and that is we know he is innocent. We know he did not kill Annabella Smith, um, but we don't know almost anything else beyond that. We, we, he knows the distance between Winnipeg and Montreal, which apparently all Canadians know. Um, <laughs> all Canadians <laughs> I think at least acquire at least a slight rooting interest. Yeah, I, I mean, most we have to identify with in Thirty Nine Steps. There's not a lot of Winnipeg we, in in but, film. I mean, oh, Winnipeg <laughs> and Montreal and everyone Canadian. perks up. Everyone <laughs> perks up at the mention of Winnipeg. Uh, I've lived here 25 years. I don't know how far it is to Montreal, um, but um, we we don't have that that familiarity with. Um, with Henne that we do with, with Roger Thornhill right from the beginning. We know what this guy's like. We know his, I mean, let's be honest, self-centered world. Um, you know, he's writing these notes to women. He's stealing cabs. Um, he doesn't really seem all that interested in the business meeting that he has. And until he is mistakenly identified as, um, as uh, a Kaplan, um, we, you know, he is just living his life. Yes. And then goes off on this. Yes. You know. Going back to that introduction, a few other things to say. He is an ad executive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a, a prosperous one. I mean, in the late 50s, I would say that the mystique of advertising, which was still, I would, I mean, obviously, advertisements of a sort were happening in the 19th century and before but advertising as a as a as a position uh that you could respectably enter into and create a kind of art based entirely on lies or expedient exaggeration in which you're attempting to create uh, a strong desire in consumers for products that they do not have and probably do not need. And that everything is about uh, fantasy promulgation. But, but yes, Grant comes on to the screen full bore as this man of enviable at-homeness in the city wearing maybe the best costume that any male actor has ever been given this astonishingly 
um, attractive Seville Row gray suit from with silk fabric, uh, worn to perfection. He knows the city is on top of the world. He's filled with uh, what I would say is Hitchcock's major sin um, dimension, which is complacency. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel that I am entitled to all of this, and I have privileges, which I have never questioned. I mean, Michael's mentioned stealing cabs. No one else's concerns really matter. Yep. And I'm, I'm um, at home with my superficiality and emptiness, I yep. think, is, is too. Yep. He's, he, he's a maybe more likable Don Draper. Um. Yes. <laughs> You'd like to say something about just backing up even further, just to sure. set up the, the formal work of North by Northwest. Let's talk about the title sequence oh. and, and how Hitchcock from the get-go, first of all, title sequences, you might want to take this, I've been talking too much, uh, <laughs> what were title sequences in the 50s and 60s all about? A comparatively new um, place for movies to be um, deeply artful and expressive. Yeah, I, and, and I, it's something, again, the British period just does not have. Um, you know, the, the title- larger a little bit and yeah. graphics and- but but uh, the 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 Bernard Herrmann score, um, you know the, these these line you you had a line a little while ago. You said there's a fine line um, in in the in the in the train sequence in the car sequence the dining car sequence between Eve and and Roger. Well, fine lines kind of typify the look, the visual look of North by Northwest, and it's all set up in the title sequence. These these dark lines, kind of some of them angled, some of them you know parallel, some of them perpendicular. And it, it, it establishes, I think, uh, an attention to height that we, that we see yes. throughout the film and, and angles, um, you know, the, the, the house at the end um, by, by, by Mount Rushmore, the Frank Lloyd Wright-esque house, yes. uh, where all these stark lines are, are, are present throughout the, throughout the, the, the frame. Do um, you have a reference for the title, North by Northwest? It's it's from it's from uh, Hamlet, is it not? Yes. Yeah, referring to Hamlet's madness. He's yes. mad, mad, mad north, north by northwest. By northwest. <laughs> a, an almost um, nonsensical direction. Yes. Um, and you, but you have all these lines which are creating a confident grid, uh, superimposed. We eventually see in prefiguring this office building where we get our first view of the, the city street as pure reflection rather than reality. I mean, we mm -hmm. see cars and people and figures reflected mm -hmm. and Hitchcock himself will shortly turn up yes. missing a bus, a bus uh, emphasizing transportation, but also thwarting in, in linkage with transportation. Yeah. What do you, what about what about Herman's score impresses you? I mean, he was Hitchcock's great musical collaborator from the mid fifties to the mid sixties. It's kind of an infectious score. Like it, it's 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 brilliant. It's catchy. It it 
it pops. Um, you know, unlike 39 Steps, where music is really important, but it's an annoying little ditty that we have to, you know, that comes back again and again. Bernard, Bernard Herman's score is, is just brilliant. It's a fandango dance with oh. a drive to it. I mean, with an exuberant drive. With, with, um, it's like there's a tension between something ominous and exhilarating with, Which the to me is the with the exhilarating coming out on top, but there's a little bit of a tug of war. Which to me is the tone of the film. Uh, yeah. the, the the film has this seriousness, like the stuff that's going on. I mean, he is legitimately kidnapped. He's taken to this house. He's mistaken for this agent. There's threats of, you know, they, they try to kill him. And yet the way Grant plays it, that incredulity of what's happening, whoa, 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 that, that what's happening, he can't believe it. And he doesn't take it all that seriously, seriously enough. Yes. But, you know, so to me the the score just reflects the tone of, yes. of the film this tension between something really serious and something light and adventurous as we've already mentioned Cary grant's characters all important seemingly invincible suit that we that we pr pray somehow will survive in its impeccable uh, well, and suits uh, beauty to, um, to the finish line. And suit suits are one of the things that when he actually gets into what he thinks is Kaplan's room, you know, oh, the, he must be shorter than me because uh, the suit doesn't fit. Yes. And why, why would why would he replace his be beautiful gray suit? He doesn't. And, <laughs> and not only that, the second the suit in Kaplan's room is flecked with dandruff. Yes. Oh, terrible. Okay. So let's pause. I th I don't think we can venture too far into the tone and world of uh -huh. of North by Northwest without conveying some sense of who Cary Grant was as a movie star. I mean, just so much in the movie is, is connected to this strange, uh, wondrous phenomenon, uh, an actor at this point who'd been around since the early 30s, but was at the absolute peak of his popularity in 1959. And yeah. who was, I would think, regarded by everyone in the country as, although he came from Bristol, a working class family in Bristol, that everyone would say, name a natural aristocrat okay, in right. America. Somebody who, though we don't have a class system, of a British sort, someone, if we could name an aristocrat, who might it be? And I, Cary Grant would, in 1959, would have been just about Absolutely. inevitable go-to. So what do you, so what is, what do you think is important about Grant that we need to get hold of in, in Hitchcock's use of him, not only in this film, but in three other films, which we'll be discussing later? Um. I, I think I think you, you you hit the nail on the head. It's that it's that assumption that Grant is somehow an aristocrat. Um, yes, he's from Bristol. You, you know, he's he's English. He has he he is able somehow to lose the accent enough that it's not he he's not thought of as English. He's thought of as American. Mm -hmm. um, 
and he just has this effortless coolness yeah. and he can do like we were talking earlier and I, I don't know if I had known this or forgotten it. You reminded me that the original intention was to have Jimmy Stewart in this role. And the, uh, it's possible that you, the class doesn't really know Jimmy Stewart <laughs> either. So it's, so it's going to be a little difficult to. They will. <laughs> they will because he's in all, he's in four Hitchcock films. Yeah. We'll be seeing all of them. However. His his American films are 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 really kind of so many of them really revolve around Grant or Stewart and then Grace Kelly or a Grace Kelly type. Um, he really kind of gravitates towards those actors. I don't think I think Jimmy Stewart would be fine in this role, um, but there's something that Grant brings to it. And I I actually was thinking about it while I was watching the film the other day. There's something about his performance in Arsenic and Old Lace that reminds me of of, yes. of, of this film. And, and if your if your class hasn't seen Arsenic and Old Lace, it is a brilliant film. And it's that he can't quite believe what's going on around him piece. Yes. And Jimmy Stewart, when he is on screen, when James Stewart is on screen, he uh, he can just be emo like emotionally raw. Yes. I mean, Grant never is. He's Grant, always buttoned. Yes. He's I always, he's a proper. There's a, there's a reserve to Grant, yep. an ironic detachment, mm -hmm. leavened with wit, mm -hmm. and a sense of mischief. He can laugh at himself, but he, um, but there's, but there's always a felt distance between Grant and things that are going on. I'm gonna yes. uh, read a little segment from a new biography of Cary Grant by Scott Eman, E-Y-M-A-N, which puts things um, into further focus. Scott Fitzgerald's dictum that the mark of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two mutually opposing thoughts in your head at the same time was personified by Cary Grant, the most self-invented man in the movies. Uh, here, he's a completely made-up character and I'm playing a part, Grant would explain. It's a part I've been playing a long time, but no way am I really Cary Grant. A friend told me once, I always wanted to be Cary Grant. And I said, so did I. In my mind's eye, I'm just a vaudevillian named Archie Leach, Leach. which was his actual birth name. Yep. Somebody yells Archie on the street, I'll look up. I don't look up if somebody calls Cary. So I think Cary Grant has done wonders for my life and I always want to give him his due. Um, but this essential duality and his comfort with it took decades to achieve. And in spite of the fact that he has this extraordinary poise and assurance and relaxed control he was, in fact, as, as Hitchcock himself testified, as fretful and anxious and depressive an actor as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Hitchcock said in 
the same two talk about two different thoughts. He said, no one could be more capable of driving me crazy in the course of making a movie than Cary Grant. But in so many respects, he's a kind of fantasy ideal figure for me. And he's the only male actor I've worked with that I've ever truly loved. Mm-hmm. So, so, but this made upness of Cary Grant is so f- appropriate. Mm-hmm a state of affairs in a movie which is so concerned with theater and the self as a performance. Performance. Putting on a role. I mean, so so you could say that Roger Thornhill is is just uh, uh, a a kind of made up entity with no substance to it, but then um, played by Cary Grant, who we've just who's described as this made up to- <laughs> who's, uh, who, whose whole presentation is a kind of, of fantasy projection that you yes. can't really penetrate completely. No one knows who Cary Grant really is. And so, it's one of the things that I think gives the comedies some underneathness. And I think one can very easily believe that Cary Grant could be capable of murder. Um, that you could, that in fact, um, almost anything might make sense of him, either dark or light, but he never allows you to go too far with him in either direction. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Hitchcock plays with that idea that Cary Grant could be a murderer in another film. In the first um, film he made with him, Suspicion. Yeah. Um, be- because there is that uneasiness. I-, I think it's that we we can't know him. He can't know himself. Um, mm-hmm. That makes it so interesting. And then you're right, like the performance piece, uh, you know, that just runs through North by Northwest, um, you know, when, when they're at the... Um, the Townsend home for the second time. And, and he's there with the police and the, the fake Mrs. Townsend is, you know, recounting what happened that night. And it's, and Roger Thornhill is what a performance. And yes. uh, uh, Van Damme says, room of theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, Van Damme says, uh, you know, you, you learn less from the FBI and more from the actors guild. Um, yes. But strikingly, and this is so typical of Hitchcock thinking, ah, it's a real library. And, Van Damme is accusing Roger Thornhill, who is in fact describing as well as he can the, the true circumstances of a situation and being disbelieved. And so we're saying, well, um, Roger Thornhill is not George Kaplan and Van Damme who lives in this house um, disbelieves him, but this can be sorted out. But, it, but then we return to the house and realize that everything in the house was more of a theater piece than uh, than anything that that Grant is being accused of uh, could qualify for. I mean, he, first of all, it wasn't really Townsend who was there. The the, the apparent wife is not his wife. Yep. Um, he's not involved in the United Nations. Uh, the bookcase is, in fact. 
uh, rather than liquor cabinet has become a bookcase. So what we took to be an actual setting with real people playing authentic roles turns out to be sheer theatrical artifice. And it's not until they, the car pulls away and we hear the snipping of the of the of the clippers that second time, and then we see that one of the gardeners is one of the people who who kidnapped him, and that revelation is for us only. Yes. Roger never sees it, um, and he doesn't find out that it's not that Townsend isn't who James Mason uh, until he goes to the UN and he thinks that James Mason is going to be giving a speech at the UN and realizes that's not the guy who was, who's, who's, that's not the guy I know. That's not Mr. Townsend. Um, and then he learns Mrs. Townsend's dead. And like, that's when, you know, the whole, the whole deck of the whole house of cards that, you know, c- crumbles before his eyes, um, everything he thought he knew and could prove wasn't wasn't true at all right I, i'm just going to ask you but since i foolishly forgot to look at the beginning approximately how long have we been chatting so far <laughs> i just want to gauge do you have any idea i think about what? 40 40 minutes maybe i okay, don't know <laughs> let's assume that it's been roughly 40 minutes but okay uh, would you like to take up the topic of other aspects of theater and role playing in North and Northwest and all, and then also talk about the similar concentration of theater uh, issues and improvisation and role playing in 39 steps. Yeah. Um, well, what, one of the major turning points, I mean, as you pointed out, the major turning point for, for, um, for Roger's character is the realization that Eve is in danger and that he needs to step in and do something about it. It's kind of his, you know, his, you know, awakening, if you will. Um, and, and that means he needs to play Roger, or he needs to play Kaplan. Um, he assumes Kaplan is, is, is this other person, but, you know, once he realizes that there is no Kaplan, he can fit into that role. And so he right. has to play that role. Because on that point, we've somehow, um, not yet mentioned, and I'll let you take this up as well. I mean, the obsession of throughout Hitchcock's career with the wrong man or wrong woman plot. Yeah. Uh, would you want to describe what that yeah. setup is and how these and how these films differently work with it? Well, it's something he establishes in his British period. Probably the lodger is the first example of this, where someone is is thought to be someone that they are not. Often it's that they're accused of murder. But we were talking about earlier, like, when when do you ever get the right man? Uh, what, you know, I think the, the wrong man plays on this idea that at any moment something could happen in our lives, that we are out of our depth, out of control. And the people we, get us wrong. I mean, the yes. they don't. I mean, they don't know who we really are. They're mistaken yes. in their judgments, and there are so many consequences based on not being truly adequately understood. Well, like um, you know, the idea that that you're going to be found out, that you're going to be put in a situation that that you don't understand is a common fear that people have. Um, and in 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 thirty nine steps, we get we get, I think the archetype really that becomes um, 
used again and again. The lodger, I think, is a little different, as Rothman points out. Uh, we don't know that he's the wrong man. Um, we th there is a sense of mystery and 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 sinisterness about that. Even at the end, we still don't quite know. Our yeah, it's 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 not the perfect wrong man. I think I think Thirty Nine Steps is really that that archetypal, you know, the establishment of the archetype of the wrong man, which he which Hitchcock returns to again and again. Um, and 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 Roger Thornhill might maybe the great um, example of the wrong man, um, where where he is. He's he's mistaken for someone who doesn't actually even exist. Um, and yet the person who doesn't exist somehow is, in certain ways, more authentic and real than Roger himself. <laughs> that Roger himself, for all of his mastery at the world of appearances, has hardly begun to exist as a person. Yes, uh, George uh, Ka Kaplan has dandruff. <laughs> That alone makes him more real. Um, you know those those little those little pieces that make that make Kaplan's. You know, it's a brilliant. Uh, maybe it's influenced by the, the 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 spy story, the man who wasn't there. Um, but you know, to create this this persona and then have someone be mistaken for him, um, and then dragged into this plot becomes. You know, it, it just the the idea of performance and of playing parts becomes so much bigger i think than than the 39 steps could have possibly imagined uh you know when that when that kind of the archetypes were being set up but i i think to your point the 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 performance pieces in 39 steps are a little different it's not quite as complicated as we see in in north by northwest um you have the musical sequence, which is a performance of 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 sort. Um, I don't think tonally, Thirty Nine Steps is as light overall as as uh, North by Northwest. A because Donut is a little different than Cary Grant in the way he performs, but that musical se sequence is quite humorous, where the audience is heckling and you know the jokes and laughs are happening. Um, it's it's quite light lighthearted. I I have a very uh, there's a couple of actors I have soft spots for from Thirty Nine Steps, and one is the the poor mustachioed man who says what causes Pippin poultry, uh, and his wife just gives him the no oh, don't look so common. But th there's these wonderful comic moments that. Yeah. Th th that are happening here. You have the Mr. Memory, who we'll talk about later, um, the performance aspect. But then you have Donut uh, Hanny, who is really improvising his way through this adventure. Um, some of the changes that that Hitchcock and his screenwriter made to the story, uh, to, to um, Buchan's novel, um, was that uh, the, the spy has a map in the, in the film that shows where the next step is in the novel. Um, he just happens to go to the, the country house of the, the, the lead spy, um, which makes no sense. Um, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a good change, but he has to then improvise his way through. He, he meets Pamela on the train. He improvises kissing her uh, a little roughly. Uh, and she turns on him. He, he has to perform in the, in the political rally and, and create, you know, give this rousing speech. He, he has to perform these series of roles. And it's interesting because we don't know anything about him. Yes. That just might be what he does. Yes. You, so you, what you're able to do is read every situation that, that Hannah is in accurately. I mean, as viewers, we know, okay, this is what is happening and why, 
Uh, and this is how Anne is performing or role-playing to get his way out of a particular um, bind. Mm -hmm. But it is there's no requirement as he does this and takes on another role that we that we compare this role that he's presently playing with the real Richard Hannay because we have no idea we and no need to know who this person is. Yeah, yeah, we have no idea who he is. Um, he just constantly reinvents himself according to the situation, and oddly, we are we are you know co coded the the film codes it to trust that he is innocent and that you know he is doing the right thing but we have no idea so what do you make of the handcuffs in 39 steps oh it, well it, it's a it's a brilliant way to bring the two actors together another um another change from the novel is there is no love interest uh, which I think makes a weaker story that narratively it works better with Pamela. And then to, to tie her to him, this, this, you know, shackled marriage. Um, it, it has an inescapable suggestion of erotic kink to it. Yes. The, yes. the kinkiness yeah. is there. Um, the unwillingness to be together is there, but this forced, this forced, mm -hmm proximity makes for both abrasiveness and vulnerability and you could call the whole thing a false marriage leading up to something different when yeah Pamela decides after a series of beautifully expressive close-ups and when she learns for a fact that Anne is indeed yeah. wrongly accused. I mean, to remain with him and then their relationship enters a different dimension. Mm -hmm. But there is something, well, very Hitchcockian about the notion of, of people shackled together in a, in, a, in a way that is both disagreeable, but also strangely affecting or mm -hmm. even arousing. Well, I, I find their shackling so much more um, interesting because she's already had the initial rejection of him. She's already tried to turn him into the police. They had the initial. <laughs> and now they're shackled together where, you know, he already knows he can't trust her, um, which is an interesting contrast to North by Northwest, um, you know, as as the narrative reveals itself, as Eve's narrative reveals itself, and we realize that first she's working for Van Damme and then she's working for uh, the, the government, um, she never turns Roger in. She believes his story. And then like we realize why she believes his story, um, you know, as, as the as the film progresses with 39 Steps. It's interesting, um, the, the few times that I've shown it with classes, uh, students have a, an initial bristly re reaction to, to Pamela because she doesn't believe um, Henny's story. But why would she? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, there's no reason to believe. Yes. Yeah, she, she, he, she is sexually assaulted on the train by him. Um, you know, and, and Weirdly, Henny himself matches your student's response. <laughs> yes. um, indignant. <laughs> That she, that he, she does not take him at his word and believes these policemen have a right to 
to capture him and take him away. Yes. Um, How could she do such a thing? Cut me some slack. (laughs) I mean, what does it mean to you to put me um, in the hands of these people? uh, And and I and I think you're taking a little bit too much pleasure and spite in in giving me over in the way that you are. Yes. How could you be so mean? that, That is his attitude. I don't think he's ever more indignant in the film in fact <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. he's not even that indignant when he's shot by the professor <laughs> that she wouldn't believe him is the most indignant he is you're right um, well, theater in relation to the professor then oh the professor character in um there's two professor characters yes, in these films steps and those, yeah, eight. yeah. And, and neither of them are up to much good. No. Um, w- one more decidedly aware that he's not up to, to, to good. Um, to me, that's a really interesting. Uh, the, the Professor of 39 Steps, um, he is the man missing the finger um, that Annabella Smith warns Henne about. And, and uh, as we were talking earlier, the shot of, of the missing finger is so striking. Um, disturbing and what what is it do you think makes this such a powerful standout moment I mean uh, you think of horror movies and there are constant images of massively monstrous uh, uh figures doing things which are are shown to us in in gruesome detail um, here we have a hand missing a digit, which is raised to the camera. That's it. And for me, it, it remains one of those those um, unforgettable shock mm-hmm. uh, revelations yeah. in cinemas. So why so powerful? I wonder. I thought about I thought a bit about this. Um, I, I think it's in part kind of driven narratively because Henne believes that he's going to this ally's house. Annabella Smith never clarifies whose house she's going to. So he goes there with, with, with an assumption that this is going to be somebody who's going to assist him and then reveals the, I know that this guy is missing his finger. And there's also the confidence with which the professor reveals um, you know, he's, he's somebody who knows what, you know, he's comfortable in his own skin and to actually call Henne and don't you mean this finger? Um, he's showing it all his cards. Like that's, that's the mark of confidence yes. and confidence in a way that completely pulls the rug out from under Henne's assumptions, whatever they are at this point. The spectators as well. Yeah. It just seems to me, we've seemed to have been brought back to a reliable, world of social decorum and nicety and a crowd in which you can find a certain amount of security and solace and oh there's a party going on and a person who is finally willing to take me at my word a benefactor so all these things seem to be a kind of uh, of security and giving Hanny's both his 
knowledge and the fact that he's 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 finally achieved some sort of reprieve from this this distressingly friendless world, this landscape filled with pursuing cops, and he's in here in and, this, crofters. In house and crofters <laughs> and crofters, and everything that he sees and counts on unravels and that, that the, the hand all by itself takes everything that not just any but that we too have believed in and counted on away and reduces it to nothing and we're back to zero and he's at the center of a place where everything is once again unknowable and dangerous and 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 from that moment he's then shot we think he he's killed we realize he's not killed. He's with the sheriff who tells the story, who he thinks is believing him, who then doesn't, you know, what yes. you know, doesn't believe him. So it like it's the start of of re, you know, changing the all the all the pieces on the chessboard again. Wrapping up the suspicion again. And then also this extraordinary providential bit of good fortune. Um the Bible that has intercepted the bullet. <laughs> and saved his life from the jacket that Margaret has given him. The hymn, it's, a hymn, it's a hymn book, because some of those hymns are hard to get through. <laughs> uh, a hymn book. And then but then you're thinking, ah, yes, Providence. I, too, believe in Providence. <laughs> then you go back to the crofter's cottage. Uh, the crofter oh. suddenly realizes that the reason the code is missing is because Margaret has given it away. She confesses. And, and oh. off screen, we hear the sound of a beating, which she yep. is receiving um, for the good thing that she has done that has, in ways that she can't understand, saved Hannah, but is of no use to her in her continuingly dark circumstance. Which when Hene says, I can't leave you here with this. And she says, oh, the worst he'll do is preach at me. Like she, she, she releases Hene who, who is willing to, to protect her or take her with him or something. Um, and she says, no, no, don't worry about it. The most he'll do is preach at me. And then, and then we realize that that's not true. Yes. Oh, what? Yeah. I love Mar Margaret's such a great character. Yes. Um, I, I well, and the Crofter too. <laughs> the Crofter too. I've, I've great. Um, that's a wonderful little character part. Should we talk about uh, our time is not too close. <laughs> well, it's close to the end, but not exactly yeah. there. Let's talk about perhaps the most famous sequence in North by Northwest, the crop duster sequence. Oh. And we, we mentioned briefly, but didn't go into it, that from the very first shots in the credit sequence, there's an emphasis on height. And the height is initially related to um, Roger Thornhill's assured sense that for all of his barbells and the fact that he has a mother who neither, neither believes nor respects him and he has two divorces that he is, he still thinks of himself as being on top of the world. And, and of course, 
he's torn down from that height almost immediately. And um, the rest of the film, whatever Roger Thornhill has been, it, it is of no help to, to him at all in trying to secure a personhood again. But about midway through the film, we have another high view of this desolate flatland, which is not Manitoba, but I mean, and Very close. Is, but dusty and and brown and empty. And Grant is then positioned in the space and his brilliance as an actor is very, very apparent. It seems to me in all of the silent reaction shots of a man waiting and looking and wondering in this, this, this nonsensical no man's land uh, with no breeze, extreme heat, whizzing cars, um, and he's in a suit, which is for the first time really beginning to get soiled even before the crop duster plane arrives. Um, but the, the terror is not, again, dark spaces at night. Mm -hmm. It's a agoraphobia, wide open spaces yeah. uh, where you yeah. can see everything in all directions, but there is nothing to protect you. Yeah. And, a, and a suit seems so utterly out of place in this rural place. So what, what, what things about the se and sequence do you especially prize? Um, I like the way Hitchcock sets it all up. Like he takes his time with the sequence. The pacing of this is 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 amazing, and I don't think somebody would would do it with with such care these days. No, things it things are so much faster. Yeah, probably the setup would be over in a jiffy because the audience needs to get their adrenaline shot. Yes, yeah, and to to take the time of the bus, the bus dropping him off, of of drying, of of moving away, and um just having nothing around and you're right like we don't even know why we're seeing this at this point um we we we're just seeing this we know there's no cover there's nowhere to hide and then oh, sorry go ahead oh and then the, and then the and then the the the, the truck pulls up and drops the guy off and we know Kaplan there's no Kaplan but he doesn't at this point he thinks this might be Kaplan and so there's that exchange Again, drawn out takes takes time, establishes it, and then he says the 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 guy catching the bus says something that we don't even necessarily pick up on. Well, that's all you don't see that every day, Dustin. Where there's no crops, and we that's when we, I think we start paying attention to the plane. Yes, it, it's just so brilliant. It's 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 paced so well, and everything is is designed to create suspense and then once we realize he is in danger and what's happening we already know that there's nowhere to hide like it's just so good and then for for the ways that 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 sequence ends like the the plane flying into the truck and exploding and it's pretty it's pretty remarkable but he's practically 
run over, but he is run over by the truck. But not yes. <laughs> Nobody will stop to help him. And he's also um, poisoned by the, 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 the fumes from the crap duster. Plane. Yes. Yes. Food is wrecked. Yes. Um, he will have cancer from the, the crop dusting things later in life. That is very instructive about Hitchcock. Now, I mean, after the fact, you could say, wait a minute, isn't it preposterous that Van Damme would send him out to Prairie Flat to be shot at by a plane. I mean, surely there would be all kinds of easier ways to dispose of Thornhill. Yes. But, I, but we don't know yet enough about Philip Van Dam, his organization, his plans to have that clear conception. And, and Hitchcock would say, look, we just have to respect the logic of the setup once we're into it. Yes. And yeah. the audience is not going to be constantly reviewing the, the logic of how he got there. He said, we're here. Let's make this logical once we've granted the surreal uh, elements that, that put him in this particular predicament. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think Hitchcock has a lot of faith in his audience. Enormous respect for his audience. Yeah, he expects a lot of them. Um, like, I, I, I mean, going back to the, the opening sequence, the, 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 the verbal hints, the, the audio cues that the, 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 the page is, is calling Mr. Kaplan and and Cary Grant raises his hand at that time, and that's what they see. Like that's a sophisticated plot device that it, requires the audience to pay attention. Made even more thematically relevant in that what causes him to raise his hand is his worry about his mother. Yes, and the fact that uh, he he's his mother won't understand the previous message that he sent. He's going to send her a telegram. Yes. And so in effect, his raising of his hand is directly linked uh, to problems that he has um, not by any means extricated himself from in his domestic life. Yeah. And, and so in, in a sense, it's not purely accidental it's character um motivated hand raising that uh in a sense tells us well something that is wrong in my in in his life is being addressed by this nonsensical arrest and and um misidentifying that that happened afterward yes yeah yeah um it's that faith in the audience i think that yeah that that the the crop dusting scene works because if you think about it too much it 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 seems you know impossible um but it it it's just it's played out so well and watching it, grant run is such a i mean a He's so in a suit. <laughs> in a suit. He's so fit <laughs> and beautiful in his, and, and I've heard some people say they, their attention is caught each and every time watching the sequence by 
his blue, navy blue socks. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he's wearing with his gray suit as he's dashing across the cornfield. A man in his 50s who is a who is grace in motion. And <laughs> and 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 we know that there's nowhere for him to go. There's nowhere, and the suit isn't gonna protect him. No. Um uh, but yeah, it's 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 a remarkable sequence. And then you know, the way he gets out of it and steals the truck and, and, and drives off. Refrigerator um, truck, no less. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a great, it's a great turn. Uh, it's a great uh, twist. And, because Okay. And, and, and even though there's a point where we might say, well, it's unlikely that Van Dam would have organized such a bizarre hit. Um, okay. At some point after a first viewing is your, thinking the movie over that might occur to you, but strangely, you can watch the film 50 times mm -hmm. after the first viewing, and that question never no. gains any traction or more force or importance in your experience of it. No, um, I, I, it's it's all placed so well, and it's paced so well, and everything works. Everything else works so well that those those questions of logic just never really stop you. They never hold you. They never hold you up. A surrealist wants set pieces that that pull us away from standard realism, mm -hmm. but at the same time, he is an, an incredibly logical, rational mind, and so he's doing rational construction in so many areas, mm -hmm. which buys him the freedom to be irrational when, when he desires to, when, when we enter into movie land, if you like. Yeah. And, and one of the things I think that makes Hitchcock so wonderful to me and to others is that for all of the artfulness and trickiness and difficulty and depth of his movies, he front loads entertainment in yes. every single film. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 we see from the British period to the American period that he, you know, th they become more complicated, they become more interesting, they become bigger. Um, but you're right, entertainment is is the the thing that he foregrounds, and that's I think why audiences never, love his films. He never neglects that. He said, yeah. "Why do people come to the film to movies?" Um, there is part of them that needs to be entertained and you must never forget that part, no matter what other aspirations yep. you may also build into a project. Yep. Well, maybe this is a good point to, to wrap, though I'm sorry to do it because I've been enjoying talking with you so much. Always good. It's always good talking to you, George. <laughs> okay, well, thank you and hope to see you soon. Thank you for joining me on Geek 4. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Geek4Pod or me on Twitter at MWBoyce. If you listen on Apple Podcast, click the subscribe button and consider leaving a five-star review. Be sure to join us next time when we learn what someone else is a geek for.